Well, once again, good morning and happy Easter. Uh, it's good to have all of you here today to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ with us. Uh, every year, around this time of the year, it seems like I see um, a heightened interest in who Jesus really was. I always see all sorts of uh, online news articles on uh, places like CNN and the Huffington Post or television shows on the History Channel and the Discovery Channel about who the real Jesus was. Who was Jesus really, these articles and uh, television shows seek to get after. Of course, the idea behind all of these shows is that there is some sort of mystery about who the real Jesus was. He can't possibly be who the Bible says he is. And so the producers of these shows, or the authors of these articles, line up their hand-picked scholars to tell you that Jesus is whoever they want Jesus to be. Let me assure you, first and foremost this morning, that we have very good reason to believe that Jesus is exactly who the Bible says he is. The Gospels that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are very good historical sources, and we can have a very high degree of confidence that the Gospels, as we have them today, are just as they were when they were originally written almost 2,000 years ago. Our modern English Bibles, despite what you might have heard, are not a translation of a translation of a translation of a translation. They are not the result of a centuries-long game of telephone Despite what the Discovery Channel might tell you, despite what CNN or the History Channel might tell you, the Gospels as we have them today are good, reliable, historical sources. If you're interested in this sort of thing, as I am, I'm very interested in this sort of thing and went through a long season in my life where I uh, spent a lot of time and energy investigating these things, I'd encourage you to do just that, to investigate these sorts of things on your own. Don't just take my word for it. Certainly, please, don't just take the Discovery Channel's word for it. 45 minutes of something on the Discovery Channel does not make you enlightened. Um, do your own honest investigating and digging. It's worthwhile. Now, invariably, in these shows or in these articles, there is always someone, it's a necessary ingredient in these sorts of things, who will say something like this. I'm not attacking Christianity. It doesn't really matter whether Jesus really lived or not. The biblical stories we have still teach us great moral lessons, and the Jesus character is a great example of love and virtue. If you have faith in him and that faith helps you, then that's great for you. I'm just saying that the Jesus of the Bible is a fictional character, not a historical person. Now, while that may sound like the, the sensible, enlightened conclusion of a sophisticated modern person who's no longer deceived by the superstition of uh, people long, long ago... These sorts of objections, that Jesus couldn't really be who the Bible says he is, that Jesus couldn't really have done the things that the Bible says he did, are about as old as Christianity itself. There's nothing new about that thought. In my opinion, I think these sorts of objections really just boil down to being a polished-over version of shooting the messenger. Some people don't want the Bible to be true. They don't want to face up to its claims and teaching. So they find a clever way to dismiss the Bible. This character, Jesus, if you want him, you can have him, but he's just this fictional character. He couldn't have been who the Bible says he was, if he even existed at all. Now, while you may not know all the details 
of the Easter story. You might not be able to tell me exactly who did what, when, and where. I'm sure that all of you have at least some idea of the Easter story. You know that this is the day when we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Hopefully that's not breaking news to you. (laughs) So this morning, I don't want to just tell you the Easter story again. What I'd like to do is ask this question. Does it matter if the events of the Easter story really happened? What I want to talk about is the significance of this historical event. What does it mean? Why is it important? Why is it worth celebrating? If you have a Bible, or if you'd like to grab a pew Bible, uh, the Bibles that are in the pews there for you, and follow along with me, please open the Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, if you don't know how to get to 1 Corinthians, 1, uh, boy, 1 Corinthians 15, if I don't know how to say it, you can't possibly know how to get there. If you don't know how to get to 1 Corinthians 15, I'm sure someone sitting around, you'd be happy to help, so please don't hesitate to ask. Also, uh, the verses will be up on the screen behind me, so you can follow along and read there if you'd like. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Nailed it. <laughs> thank you. Yes, yes, thank you. Uh-huh. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 14. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. The Christian faith is not just a system of morals or principles of wisdom. It's not just a philosophy or a certain set of religious rituals. Our faith is a historical faith in real, historical people and events. The very foundation of our faith is Christ's resurrection from the dead. If Christ is not raised, actually, historically raised, then we have a very serious problem. Paul, the author of this book, says that if Christ is not raised then my preaching, my doing this here now, is useless. If Christ is not raised, the Christian faith is useless. If Christ is not actually, historically raised from the dead, then as I stand here, I am even misrepresenting God. Because I, like Paul, am testifying to the fact that God has, in fact, raised Christ from the dead. That is an actual, historical event. If Christ is not raised from the dead, then in fact, we Christians are to be pitied because what we have believed is a lie. We've put our faith in a falsehood. Most importantly, though, if Christ is not raised from the dead, then we have a real problem. Verse 17, we are still in our sin. If Christ is not raised, then we are still in our sin. And therefore, our faith is useless, my preaching is useless, this whole service, this entire religion is worthless and meaningless. That's how important Christ's actual historical resurrection is. If Christ is not raised, 
All of this is a waste and a lie, and we still have a very serious problem. We are still in our sin. Every person who's ever lived shared at least one thing in common. We've all been afflicted by sin. Sin is a sort of spiritual disease, a curse that we're born with. And this disease, this curse, it affects the way we think, the way we, the way we live. As a matter of fact, sin affects every part of who we are. And it's because of this sin disease that we are naturally inclined towards things like selfishness and pride. I now have three children. I've gone from zero to three children in blinding speed. Uh, <laughs> I have a two-year-old daughter. She actually turns two tomorrow. So come Tuesday. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Come Tuesday, we no longer have three under two, so we've got, it should be easy come then, right? Uh, I've got a lot going on. I'm changing a lot of diapers these days. Uh, my two-year-old daughter is named Addison. Uh, she is sweet, and I love her more than I thought it was possible to love another person. I know that's cliche, but cliches get a bad rap. They're just true things that are repeated over and over again. So um, I do. It's, it's, uh, parents understand exactly what I'm talking about. But anyone who has been a parent knows that you don't have to teach your kids to be selfish and rude and mean. They come that way. <laughs> Even a great little girl like my daughter needs to be taught to be patient. Let me tell you about how Addison asks for milk. Um, <laughs> you know, she's two, so she can kind of speak. And she'll say, Daddy, milk, please. Milk, please. And so a lot of times she'll tilt her head, milk, please. Okay. So say, for example, I'm changing uh, one of her sisters, what I spend most of my time doing when I'm not here. I'm changing a diaper, and Addison comes up to me and goes, milk, please. I go, okay, okay, sweetheart, I'll be glad to get you some milk. You just have to wait a second. Let me finish changing your diaper. Milk! She throws herself on the ground. <laughs> okay. Addison, Addison doesn't really kick and scream. She just, like, lays face down on the ground. Milk! 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 I didn't have to teach Addison to do that. <laughs> she came that way. <laughs> the reason we need to teach our kids to be patient and to share is because they're naturally inclined to be selfish and impatient. The reason we need to teach our kids to be nice is because they're naturally inclined to be mean. Now, of course, all children have their moments. There are moments when Addison is incredibly sweet with her little sister. She kisses them before bed at night or will put a blanket on them. But I'm sure parents know exactly what I'm talking about. That is the sin disease. That natural, inbred inclination to be selfish and dishonest, to think of ourselves more highly than we should, to put ourselves first and disregard other people whenever we think we can get away with it. Now, I'm not suggesting that every person who has ever lived is diabolically evil. I think for the most part, people want to do good and to be good. The problem is that while we want to be good, we're inclined to be bad. That is our plight. You probably want to be honest, but you're inclined to tell lies, to cover up, to shade the truth a little bit. You may want to be selfless and generous, but you're inclined to be selfish. All people, if they want to be good, have to constantly fight their natural inclination to be bad. That natural inclination to selfishness, impatience, 
And dishonesty is the sin disease, and we're born with it. So we're born with this affliction, a natural inclination to do wrong. And over the course of our lives, we willingly go along with that inclination. We lie and cheat and steal and slander. We gossip and lust and hate. We are all, every one of us, sinners by birth and by choice. We have this serious sin problem. Try as we might, and many people do try, we can't seem to solve this problem that we have on our own. Some people have more success than others. Some people wear well-pressed dockers and drive the speed limit and hold open doors and take nice smiling family portraits. But make no mistake, we all have a sin problem. The Bible says we are enslaved to sin. And man, if you are honest with yourself, I'm sure you know exactly how true that is. You've experienced the frustration and the burden of dealing with the sin disease, and at times it feels the guilt of the times when you've willingly been selfish, dishonest, rude, and mean is overwhelming. And on top of the burden and the frustration of dealing with this inclination, this sin disease, there are just consequences for our sins. Just consequences for our sins. When a person commits a crime, there is a just penalty, and so too with sin. There is a just consequence, condemnation, and eternal separation from God. Sin is a serious problem. It's not something to be taken lightly. But here's the good news. And this is what makes today such a great day, the greatest day of the year, a day worth celebrating. God is profoundly, overwhelmingly loving. God loves each and every one of you and every person who has ever lived more than you could possibly begin to imagine. God sees our plight, our condition, our disease, our enslavement, and it breaks his heart. Everybody knows John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Not as many people know John 3.17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God does not want to condemn you for your sin. God sees your, flight and, your plight and he wants to save you from your sin. That's how loving God is. God knows that we deserve just punishment for our sin. And God cannot just look the other way. He can't simply choose to turn a blind eye to sin. God cannot be loving if he is not also just. God cannot be loving if he is not also just. Imagine a judge charged with executing justice, simply turning a blind eye and allowing all criminals to get off without any punishment or consequence for their crime whatsoever. Would you call that judge loving? Imagine if some awful crime had been, committing, had been committed against some member of your family. And when the criminal appeared in the courtroom, the judge simply said, you can go free. No consequence, no punishment. Is that sort of blind eye to justice a loving thing? There can be no love without justice. There can be no love without justice. God cannot abandon justice for the sake of love. So he cannot simply turn a blind eye, he cannot simply turn a blind eye to our sin. He can't simply say, you know what, I see your sin, it's a problem, but I'm just going to let it slide. I'm going to let it go. The good news this morning 
is not simply that Jesus resurrected from the dead, but that by his resurrection, Jesus conquered sin and death and thus made new, true, abundant, eternal life available to each one of us. He's done the work. He's paid the price. He's taken the penalty. So this gift of life is available to every one of us, to each one of you, for free. For free. It's by God's grace alone. God sees our sin problem, and so he decided to send his son to take our punishment for us. That's why Good Friday is called Good Friday. Though Jesus suffered a brutal and terrible death, that day was a good day because on that day, Jesus took the punishment that was due to you and to me and to each one of us for our sin. And on the third day, that first Easter morning, in a real historical place in time, Jesus resurrected from the dead, conquering sin and death. Amen. It's because of Jesus' real, actual, historical death and resurrection that we now have access to a cure for the disease of sin. We have access to emancipation from a slavery to sin. That is what is at stake when we think about whether or not these events really happened. If Jesus has not actually, historically taken the penalty for our sin, then it doesn't matter how inspiring the biblical story is, we still face the just consequences for our sin. If Jesus has not actually, historically resurrected from the dead, conquering sin and death, then we are still spiritually dead and enslaved in our sin. Look back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The good news that I have the highest privilege of sharing with you today is found in verses 20 through 22. If Christ has not been raised, then our faith is useless and we are still in our sin. But, verse 20, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. It is because Christ really died and then on the third day rose from the dead that we celebrate Easter. That is why today is a day worth celebrating, the day most worth celebrating. If this was just some story, some fiction that's meant to motivate you or inspire you in some way, then this day is not worth celebrating. Your time would have been better, slept, better spent getting a little bit more sleep. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. So then, this morning, I want to invite you to put your faith in Christ or to renew your faith in Christ. We all have a serious sin problem, but God has decisively dealt with that problem by sending Christ to take our, pen our penalty for us and to conquer sin and death. Because of what Christ has done, God offers you new, true, abundant, eternal life and because Christ has already done the work and paid that price, that gift is offered to you and to everyone for free. All we have to do is accept God's offer by faith. That's it. My invitation to you this morning is simple. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I want to conclude this morning by letting Scripture uh, have the final say on this. I want to read a passage that I'm sure many of you know, at least in part, 
But my hope is, in light of what I've said and in light of Easter morning, these words become particularly clear and particularly powerful. You don't need to turn there. The words will be up on the screen. I'm just going to read it for you. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our own sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming age he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Amen.